0: From PRX.
1: This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This, this first level of garden. This is
2: Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done.
3: Editing is all about timing.
4: I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own
2: voice, right?
5: Studio
2: 360. It's Kurt Anderson. Tell me his name again. Thanos.
1: The summer blockbuster season has just started with The Avengers Infinity War, which sold $640 million worth of tickets around the world in its first weekend, the biggest movie opening of all time. And in this hour of Studio 360, we are leaping into the world of comic books and superheroes as
2: well.
0: He's a plague, Tony, he invades planets, he takes what he wants, he
2: wipes out half the population. If he gets his hands on all six stones, Tony. If Thanos needs all six, why don't we just stick this one down the garbage disposal? No can do. We swore an oath to protect the Time Stone with our lives. And I swore off dairy, but then Ben and Jerry's named a flavor after me,
0: so. Start Raving hazelnuts. Not Ben.
1: First up a comic that depicts a real-life event that was as strange and complicated and operatic as anything in fiction. The Boxer Rebellion is one of those historical events you're supposed to know about. I'm willing to bet you don't, because I didn't. And if you don't, all the more reason to get a copy of the terrific graphic novel Boxers and Saints by the artist and author Jean Luen Yang. In the year 1900, a lot of Chinese were fed up with the Western business people and missionaries swarming over their country. The insurgency of the boxers, as they were called, was quickly crushed by an international military coalition, including U.S. forces. But not before the boxers had killed 30-some thousand Chinese Christian converts.
6: It was like this ragtag army of of these poor, illiterate teenagers from the Chinese farmlands who believed that they could call the Chinese gods down from the skies. And these Chinese gods would give them superpowers.
1: Talk about the characters you chose to, to represent each side.
6: Uh, both of the protagonists are, are fictional. So the main character in the first volume is a, a boy named Little Bao who grows up to become a boxer. On the other side, uh, the main character is a young woman named Four Girl. Um, she's born into a, a Chinese family, a traditional Chinese family that, that doesn't really accept her. And she grows up to convert to Catholicism.
1: And you uh, were raised as a Christian and are still a practicing Christian, yeah?
6: Yeah, I'm still a practicing Catholic, yeah.
1: And given that you had a home team, did that make it hard to depict the boxer side in even-handedly?
6: Well, I, I think um, I think like a lot of Asian American Christians, I think um, I grew up within this tension, within this tension between um, Western belief systems and, and Eastern culture. So it, it very much, I, I feel like this this book, the, the dual nature of this book, sort of expresses an ambivalence I have about my own identity.
1: The, the, your scenes in which the peasants turn into warrior gods are are especially dramatic. The frames get suddenly large. The colors are intense, and the faces are kind of terrifying. The the book became more comic bookish at those moments and less sort of graphic novel.
6: <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'm a huge comic book fan. I grew up reading comic books. I grew up reading superhero comic books. And that was one of the ways I found a connection with these boxers, with these teenagers from over 100 years ago. Um, th- these young men, they first learned about the heroes of Chinese mythology through Chinese opera. So China has this long tradition uh, of opera. And um, it's very colorful. It's um, very dramatic and very stylistic. Uh, and when I read about Chinese opera, and especially when I read about Chinese opera's place in these young men's lives, I saw a lot of connections between Chinese opera and American superhero comics. Huh. You know, both of these media, they they tell stories about these heroes who dress in bright colors, who have superpowers, who fight these epic battles for the, the fate of the world. And in a lot of ways, you know how... The, the way American geeks latch on to superheroes is sort of the way these young men in China latched on to Chinese opera. They felt hopeless and angry and... And they expressed their hopelessness and anger. They dealt with their hopelessness and anger by identifying strongly with these heroes that that they watched on stage.
1: Well, and comic book superheroes are often most – maybe mostly sort of navigating between two worlds.
6: Yeah, that's something that my Asian-American comic book friends and I talk about a lot. There are a lot of Asian-Americans involved in comics right now in every level of – uh, the medium. And and we wonder if in a lot of ways we're attracted to this medium because we grew up with these stories of American superheroes and every American superhero negotiates between multiple identities, right? So, so Batman isn't just Batman. He's also Bruce Wayne. So in a lot of ways, I think Asian Americans and immigrants, kids in general, we, we, we can find... Uh, reflections of ourselves in these characters.
1: Yeah, you've written other stories about the tensions between East and West, and immigrants. American-born Chinese is about a kid growing up in a in a San Francisco suburb, one of the only Asian kids in his school. Uh, you grew up in a San Francisco suburb, one of the only Asian kids in your schools. <laughs> Am I wrong to imagine that American-born Chinese is wholly autobiographical?
6: It's not wholly autobiographical. It's fiction, but I did pull heavily from my own life in order to create that that book. Um, when we first, when my family first moved into the neighborhood where I spent most of my childhood, we were one of just a handful of Chinese-American families there. Uh, There were so few of us that my mom actually went to the school and asked them for the addresses of the other Chinese-American families. And then we went and made house calls one afternoon. We just went and met all three or four of them. Nowadays, it would be seen as something crazy, right? You wouldn't do that at all. But back then, because there were so few of us, that was an accepted thing to do.
1: American Born Chinese takes a kind of surreal turn when it becomes for a while a, a sitcom and and the comic relief is this character called chin Qi uh, who's a caricature with buck teeth and very yellow skin and 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 he speaks with this extreme stereotypical accent um and he's supposed to be embarrassing uh that is the point which as part of what makes the book great but did did people at the time think oh my god he's stepped over some kind of line of taste were you were you like <laughs> was it like portnoy's complaint among chinese americans
6: that was definitely chinky cousin chinky was by far the most controversial part of american borch so i didn't chinese. even want to
1: say chinky cuz that sounded more <laughs> racist
6: yeah 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 that, i did, i did that on purpose i i get three different kinds of reactions to cousin Chinky, you know, from, usually from older Asian Americans, Asian Americans in their 50s and 60s, a lot of them will get to the point in the book where Chinky shows up and they'll tell me that that character made them feel so uncomfortable that they had a hard time finishing the book from that point on. And yeah. in a lot of ways, I feel good about that because I feel like that was kind of what I was going for. Then from other folks, other readers, usually um, Asian Americans who are around my age or younger, A lot of them will tell me that um, they found Cousin Chinky really funny. They found him really hilarious, but they felt... Guilty about laughing, and they felt really. Inc- it was like they were laughing with a with a knot in their stomach. Yeah, and I kind of feel like that. That's good too, because that's kind of what I was going for as well. And then the minority opinion, the the minority reaction that I get uh, every now and then, somebody will come up to me and tell me, "Oh, you know that cousin Chinky character? He's so cute. Have you ever thought about making him into like a plush doll or putting him on a T shirt?" and and those folks, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that makes me feel uncomfortable. You know, because that was not what I was going for at all.
1: That. That picking any commodification yeah. <laughs> idea? Yeah,
6: yeah my uh, my only regret for American Born Chinese is that, is that I didn't exaggerate Cousin Chinky even more, because I feel like if I had made him lo- look even more monstrous, if I had made him look even more brightly yellow and more, you know, more exaggerated, maybe maybe that final reaction would go away.
1: Yeah. Um, so you have also done some big deal work for hire over the last few years, such as the. Avatar, Last Airbender comic book, which I have to point out is different from the bad Last Airbender
6: movie uh, that came (laughs) out in 2010. So how did you get that gig? That was an amazing thing that happened. I was a huge fan of that show. So Avatar, Last Airbender, to my mind, it was probably the best American-produced animation show ever. Uh-huh. I mean, the writing in that show was just stellar. They it, it was meant for kids seven and up, but they dealt with all sorts of really complex topics like, you know, culture and, and the nature of evil, all sorts of things, family dynamics. Well, a- after the show ended, um, they announced that they are going to make a live-action movie based on the show, and I was really excited about that. Then they announced that M. Night Shyamalan was going to direct it and I was a little bit less excited I thought well you know I liked his first two or three movies yep and then they announced the casting and in the show the show is set in a fantasy world but it's a fantasy world based on real world Asian cultures you know uh, it, it pulls heavily from uh, Japan and from from China from the Inuit cultures uh, but for the for when they casted the live-action version they gave all of the major heroic roles to white actors. And to me, it just felt like yet another instance of yellowface, Face, of, of Hollywood's practice of getting, giving these, these roles that would most logically go to Asian or Asian American actors and, and, and giving them to, to white actors. And then when did you start writing the comic? The way I got the comic gig was I was so mad about this movie that I did a webcomic about how I was never going to see this movie because of this issue. And I put it up on my website – and um, one of the folks that read that webcomic was an editor at Dark Horse Comics. Uh-huh. So f- a few years later, Dark Horse bought, uh, purchases from Nickelodeon the, the license to to do these airbender comics. And because this editor had read this comic of mine complaining about the live-action movie, she knew I was a fan. And she contacted me and asked me if I'd be willing to write it for them.
1: Wow. That's one of the most gratifying acts of revenge uh, in a cultural way I've ever heard. That's great. <laughs>
6: Yeah, I was just very excited to dive into this world. I asked her. I asked her, "Do I do we have to reference the movie at all?" And she said, "No, yeah. not at all." So,
1: so you, you you have that great gig. You've won awards. You publish widely. Uh, you still work as an administrator at a high school.
6: I do. I do. Years ago, I was a I was a full time high school teacher. I taught mostly computer science, but I did some math and some art as well. And. Uh, a few years ago, I had to go part time, but it's it's difficult for me to imagine leaving that community completely, or, or just leaving education completely. I, I think I'm I'm just as passionate about education as I am about comics.
1: And does being this big comic book guy and graphic novelist make th- High school kids think, hey, you know, Mr. Yang, he's cool. He does these
6: things. He's not just a teacher. <laughs> not at all. I think it's just hard to impress teenagers that you see on a daily basis. Well, yes. Yeah. It's a hard,
1: hard to impress teenagers, I think, is a, is a, is a gift yeah, in yeah, almost every right. culture. Uh, Gene Luen Yang, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Thank
6: you, Kurt. It was, it was great to talk to you.
1: Gene Lin Yang is the author of Boxers and Saints and American-Born Chinese. You can see some of his work at studio360.org. I talked to Gene four years ago, and a couple of years after that, he was named a MacArthur genius and became the Library of Congress's National Ambassador for Young People's Literature, which made me want to check back in with him. Hello? Hello, Gene. Uh, this is Kurt Anderson. Hi,
7: Kurt. How are you doing?
1: I'm, I'm great. And, and more to the point, congratulations.
7: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm really excited. Uh,
1: so what does is, what is this ambassadorship entail besides, I don't know, ribbon cuttings at bookstores and, and libraries or
7: something? Well, the National Ambassador for Young People's Literature is a post that was started in 2008, so it's not very old. And the whole point is to get more kids reading and to get kids reading more.
1: So, so, Mr. Ambassador, uh, h- how will you do this? How will you encourage uh, young Americans to read more?
7: Uh, I really want to encourage kids to explore the world through reading, and I want them to explore in three very specific ways. Number one, I want them to explore the lives of people who are different from them. So I want them to pick books that have people on the cover that don't look or live like them. Two, I want them to pick subject matters, books about subjects, that they might find intimidating. And my pet project here is to get more kids reading about STEM, about science, technology, engineering, engineering, and math. And then finally, I want them to pick books in unfamiliar formats. Nowadays, there's a huge diversity of formats out there. So there are graphic novels and prose novels and novels and verse and hybrid novels. I want kids to try all those different formats.
1: And do you tend? Have you taken your own advice? Do you do you say, "Well, these people are not like me, and I'm intimidated by this." But by God, I'm going to read it.
7: Absolutely. You know, um, I grew up not liking sports at all, mostly because I was terrible at it. You know, especially basketball. Every time I played basketball, the ball would find some way of hitting me in the head. Well, I eventually got interested in basketball just recently, really, uh, and, and books played a huge part. I, I started by reading this book called Outside the Paint, which was about the basketball scene in San Francisco Chinatown in the 1930s and 40s. I had no idea there was even a basketball scene in Chinatown in the 30s and 40s. It was an amazing book, and that led to me reading a whole bunch of other books about basketball and getting really interested.
1: And in addition to becoming the, this national ambassador for young people's literature, you, you, uh, I understand have been, uh, I guess, to continue the basketball idea, called up to the NBA. That is, got a call from DC Comics.
7: <laughs> I have said that before. I've told people that working for DC Comics is a bit like working for the NBA. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. It's been kind of like the, the 12-year-old inside of me is freaking out. About sure. This.
1: I can imagine. Uh, the, The last time we spoke, you were working as a high school administrator, and you said then that you could not imagine leaving education completely because you're so passionate about it. But you've left education.
7: I did. I left because of Superman. When, when DC offered me the Superman gig, I just couldn't fit it into my schedule. And it was so hard. It, was, uh, it felt like I was breaking up with somebody. I ended up losing sleep for a couple of nights. I lost my appetite. It was crazy. But, but you know, I, I feel like, um, selfishly at least, this ambassadorship is, is kind of a blessing for me because it gives me another form in which to connect with students.
1: Well, and I assume that your 16-year-olds uh, who, mi- who missed – uh, uh Mr. Yang certainly would understand like what
7: you're gonna go right Superman. <laughs> yeah, yes! they were they were they were really happy for me for sure.
1: Well, uh, congratulations and uh, it was great to talk to you again.
7: Well, thank you, thank you, Kurt. It was great to talk to you too.
1: Coming up, Comic-Con cosplayers who get racially interrogated about their costumes.
8: They've asked us, like, okay, well, are you the black version of Superman? Are you this version, are you that version? And I'm like, no, I'm just Superman.
1: We've got lots more stories about superheroes ahead in Studio 360.
9: Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, offering a language program that uses interactive dialogue and speech recognition technology to teach a new language like Spanish, French, or Italian. Babbel is available in the App Store or online at babbel.com. Studio
10: 360
1: Cosplay, as you probably know, is the term for when fantasy and sci-fi fans dress up as their favorite characters and get together at conventions like Comic-Con. Cosplay used to be considered a a niche part of that subculture, something so geeky and over-the-top that even hardcore fans made fun of their fellow geeks who did it. Then social media came along.
5: I'm Irena Liddell,
1: and I am cosplaying Steamy Leia today. Ooh, Steamy Leia. Yes. Cosplayers started posting videos of themselves in all their spandex-clad, cape-wearing splendor.
2: I found, what's your name? Sub-Zero. What does your mom call you? Uh, Dan.
1: The Facebook and Twitter and Instagram videos helped normalize cosplay, even made it seem kind of sort of cool. And while Black Panther has opened up a lot of new possibilities for black cosplayers, this sector of the fantasy world is still pretty beige. My friend Eric Malinsky, who is a bona fide sci-fi and fantasy expert, brought us their story.
11: Every year during San Diego Comic-Con or New York Comic-Con, lots of websites will post slideshows of their favorite costumes. One thing that I've noticed is that those images rarely reflect the actual diversity that I see in the convention floor. What I see at Comic-Cons, and rarely in slideshows, are black cosplayers dressed as characters that are not traditionally depicted as black. So I sat down with Brittany K. Williams and another cosplayer who goes by the name Sookie. And before I could even start, they were asking each other questions.
10: If you have really good, like, bendable, like, Eva foam, or even if you use, like, Instamorph... You can make the star yeah. and the circular part, and if you have yeah. like a good amount of warbler, then that's perfectly fine. The The staff part yeah. can be like a dowel or like a, like a piece of like PVC pipe.
11: Okay, I, I really have no idea what they're talking about. But I do know that they're talking about the challenge of taking two-dimensional cartoon characters, or video game characters, and figuring out how to look like them in real life. And they're not Hollywood costume designers. The materials have to be affordable, but look fantastic. Now, of course, those are practical challenges that every cosplayer faces. But black cosplayers have to deal with a lot more.
9: My first dumb, annoying comment was said in, um, out of love. And I I feel like that made it worse so much or, worse yeah like they, or she like they she mean meant well it she it, meant but... it with love and it was um when the first time I was prepping to do cosplay and uh or like for a convention that I was prepping to do it and I'm I'd made my list of characters that I wanted to be and I was like oh I could be this and I could be this and I could be this and I could be this my friend who was white she she was like well you can't be those characters and I was like why can't I be those characters she was like they're not black you could be these characters and she named like three characters from shows that I did not watch who happened to be black and like one is like you could be Anthe from Utena and I was like I don't I don't watch that show I'm Sailor Moon I'm not and if I'm gonna be a character from Utena, I'm gonna be Utena. I'm gonna be the lead. I'm not gonna be a secondary character. Like I don't. That's not what I do.
11: Yeah, it's almost like assuming that you're only gonna identify with, with that one
9: minority character.
10: Yeah, it's like
9: that's not how no. it works.
10: Yeah, yeah. especially
9: all. because they're usually like background characters. If they're not the secondary character, then they're like tertiary yeah, they're like, characters, like the sidekick I'm or like, something. No, I'm the lead. lead. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sorry. We did you not get that? No, that's not what we do here. And and it's so funny you say that because it's just like I
10: cosplayed Raven from Mm -hmm. Teen Titans and it's just like I've actually had someone go, oh, why don't you just be Bumblebee?
11: By the way, Teen Titans is a DC comic book series. Bumblebee is one of the black characters.
10: And I'm just like, um, as much as as much but as Bumblebee kicks I love Raven, but I'm just, and somebody's just like, um, but Raven's white. I'm like, first of all, no, she's not. She's not even human. She's Azarathian and she is half demon. She, her, and her skin is gray, so your argument is fully invalid.
11: Here is a married couple that cosplays together, Harry and Gina Crossland.
8: Sometimes we don't go to the movies to actually see the movies. We go to the movies to get the cosplay ideas. Like, that movie sucked, but the costume was awesome.
11: <laughs> a few years ago, Harry was at Baltimore Comic-Con talking with his friends Trent and Mike. And one of them said he should dress up as Bishop, a black X-Men character who was tall with dreadlocks, just like Harry.
8: Trent was really hung up on the idea. said, dude, you got the height, you got the size, you should do it. I so said, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. I think about it. So I thought about it. And I think maybe about two or three weeks later, I showed Gina the idea. Gina liked it and said, "Okay, well, let's run with it let's let's just see what happens. say so either it'll be a big hit or nobody will care because Bishop is a character right now that you're really seeing in the comic books.
11: so when Harry finally debuted his bishop costume, it was a big hit. But Harry is more excited about his Superman costume, which has Kryptonian armor, like in the movie Man of Steel.
8: The problem is... And this is this is happening, you know, amongst my own folk as well. They're, they're you know, when they see us doing these these different spins, you know, they've asked us like, OK, well, are you the universe 24 version of Superman?
11: Meaning are you from an alternative universe?
8: Are you are you the black version of Superman? Are you this version? Are you that version? And so on and so on and so forth. And I'm like, no, I'm just Superman. And, you know, there have been times I've actually gotten into debates with people who are like, well, you know, and, and they didn't want to come out and say it and say, well, you know, Superman is white. You know, they try to say, well, you know, if you did this or if you added this to your army, you could be that version. I'm like, I don't want to be that version. I'm the version that you see in front of you.
11: Talking with these cosplayers, I noticed a few themes coming up. First, a desire to come up with your own spin on a classic character that stands out, maybe says something. Second, a pride in their craftsmanship and wanting to be recognized for that. And third, a deep yearning for community. That's why Brittany writes for the website Black Nerd Problems.
9: So haha. Black Nerd Problems is uh, a culture website. Uh, and I like to say that we we report on the convergence between nerd culture and black culture.
11: Suki often wondered where those cultures overlapped when she was growing up in Coney Island.
9: Not for nothing, like when people
10: think of Coney Island, they automatically think of the mermaid parade, like the rides, the, the hot dog eating contest, the boardwalk and the beach don't ever go in the water. But out of the f- like out of all the people that I've met there, I've probably met three or four other people that were into like nerd that were into like nerd culture and into cosplay. And it's just like when I'm walking around in cosplay, because I remember one time for New York City Pride, I actually cosplayed as Rainbow Dash because why the hell not?
11: it what's Rainbow Dash?
10: <laughs> from My Little Pony. Oh. Friendship is Magic. Yes, that show's good, <laughs> so. <laughs> you're just like,
11: by the way, friendship is magic.
10: Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm walking through the neighborhood and I've had like so many people staring at me and one of them like was my neighbor and they're all looking at me like, what the hell does she have on <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> they look at me like with this stereotype because like I've actually gotten this all the time growing up like, yo, you're black. Why are you like, why are you doing all this quote unquote white people stuff?
11: So again, that is why I was so surprised how diverse the fan base is at Comic Cons, because the slideshows don't often reflect that.
8: Because the thing is, when you have other people out there that have never cosplayed, they have never been to a comic convention, and they want to go, especially when they are of a, a minority, when there are people that are nervous about their body type, when they see the video and all they see on the videos are young, skinny people, regardless of what color you are, young and skinny, and and, and that's all you see, then that's going to make you less want to go out and cosplay.
11: This issue came to the fore a few years ago when a cosplayer named Shaka Cumberbatch came up with the hashtag, 28 Days of Black Cosplay, which coincided with Black History Month.
8: Oh, I was all on it. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was the best thing ever.
11: Tzuki felt the same way.
10: She started a revolution. Yeah. When you think about it, she started one of the nerdiest, geekiest, artiest, cosplayest revolutions in the black community. And it's gone so far yeah. off the grid and it's actually gone worldwide because there are cosplayers not just in the States. Uh, there are black cosplayers in Canada, black cosplayers in the United Kingdom, black cosplayers in the Netherlands. And it's just so,
9: so beautiful to look at. It's like a bet signal. We can we call out to each other. Yes, like say like you're someone in the middle of like the middle of nowhere in Wisconsin, and you're like, I kind of want to do cosplay, but I don't know what to do. I don't know. Do black people even do this? I don't know. Then just hit the look hashtag. There you go.
11: They've had to fight larger battles too. A shocking number of white cosplayers have taken to wearing blackface when dressing as characters that are traditionally black, like Storm from X-Men or Michonne from The Walking Dead.
8: When you decide that, okay, I'm going to do Storm or I'm going to do Michonne from Walking Dead, and I got everything else right, I even got the wig, but now I'm going to color my skin, that's a no.
3: And widen my nose. Since
8: right. Oh yeah, yeah, there was a young lady in Germany who did that and who decided she wanted to get a prosthetic for her nose. Because I feel like this, um, my skin is not your costume. You know, for as many people that actually want to die on that hill and defend the practice of blackface, I tell them, I say, well, I do Superman. How would you guys feel if I went out and I painted my skin to, to appear white and then got a spit curl?
11: The most common argument they get from blackface cosplayers is that other cosplayers put on green makeup to play the Hulk, or red makeup to be Hellboy.
9: You're like, you can put on green makeup. Does that make it racist? Is that weird? Like, if I put and on I'd green like makeup know, or if I put I on like, to, blue makeup? or and it's I like no, them it's know, not I the need same. you to go
10: on Facebook right now and go through your friends list and see which one of them actually has green skin that was born of this planet. Right. That's literally <laughs> like, what no. I tell them. Which one of the, yeah. your Facebook friends has green skin or has yeah. purple skin? I'd like to meet them right now and ask them, if they think it's racist. And if you right. can't find me, not one person with green skin or purple skin or blue skin, then I need you to shut all the way up.
11: <laughs> but they are impressed when they see non-black cosplayers play black characters without blackface.
8: Like, like for instance, um, I saw this Asian lady do Michonne at Baltimore Comic Con. It was it was spot on. Mm-hmm. Great. I was like, and I told her, I, I pulled her aside. I said, ma'am, thank you so much. <laughs>
11: Sookie once saw a white cosplayer dressed as Mike Tyson.
10: He was bald. He had the face tattoo and everything, and was and did a great job. And like when somebody was like, "You have the great Mike Tyson cosplay," he like the guy said himself, "Yeah, I don't understand why people have to blackface in order for it to be accurate."
11: Having to constantly referee these issues can be exhausting. That's not why they went into cosplay. They got into this hobby for the same reason everyone else did because it's fun.
3: I feel like a celebrity for a day. Even my father, who came to Baltimore once, he said, y'all like celebrities. People just come up to you and want to take a picture. I said, yeah, it feels good, don't it?
1: (laughs) A version of this story also appeared on Eric Malinsky's excellent podcast, Imaginary Worlds. By the way, since we first aired that piece... I talked to the costume designer for Black Panther, Ruth Carter, and I asked her about cosplay.
3: I am so, like, it's the best form of honoring, you know, what I have done because... They're already affected by the imagery, and that feels to me like it has filled a big void in the cosplayer world where you uh, didn't have someone that maybe looked like you, that you could really, you know, work on that costume and compete in the competitions that they have and, and actually feel like, you know, you have done everything including your own human being self you know looks like what they look like and i think it was a a a void in the cosplayer's world that there weren't enough african american superheroes in that genre so i am super honored so
1: the black panther uh do, do you, i mean there have been comic books for 40 years of the black panther was that your initial uh, immersion research? Like, let me see how they drew him in the comics?
3: I needed to make him a part of the real world. Uh-huh. And I needed to connect to Africa in a way that people could see that he was a part of that continent. Of the real Africa on some level. Of the real Africa. Yeah. And that they paid homage to the ancient African traditions that are disappearing and that they knew from which they came. So you had... The the, the uh, I looked at the stick fighters, the Surma stick fighters, um, and how the men you know draped the cloth around their bodies, and I was inspired by, by that. I looked at the Tuareg um, people and how they used the beautiful purples and gold and silver, and you know. And I looked at the Maasai warriors and and infused that red color onto the. Dora Molage. And I needed something like that. I needed Ryan's direction.
1: That's Ryan Kugler.
3: Yeah, Ryan Kugler, our director. You know, I needed him to say the women in the Dora Molage don't need to be, you know, scantily clad. These these soldiers. These soldiers, these soldiers need to have protection. They need to have arm rings and neck rings that are not only paying homage to ancient tribes, but it's also really practical as far as protection as a fighter. Um, I want the women uh, to have this split-toe boot and be in flat boots, not have on heels like we see a lot of superheroes. You know, we don't have to do that. We can do something different we can be we can be unique and we can actually be more realistic and it will still be appealing
1: black panther costume designer ruth carter
9: Support for Studio 360 comes from Babbel, a language app that teaches real-life conversations in a new language, like Spanish, French, or German. Babbel's 10- to 15-minute lessons are available in the App Store or online at babbel.com. And by the SC Group, whose charitable resources include FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds, at fjc.org. Studio
5: 360.
1: As more and more Marvel comic book characters make their way to movie theaters and TV screens, fans of those comic books get obsessed and and giddy about how exactly each superhero will become corporeal. How exactly will Black Panther or Jessica Jones or Luke Cage look? But a new venture from Marvel is concerned only with how the superhero will sound. It's a podcast called Wolverine, The Long Night. And to make the characters seem real in your earbuds, Marvel hired two young, talented producers, one of whom I met when he was just a wee lad.
4: So this is actually kind of funny. Um, I started out at Studio 360. That was my first radio internship.
1: That is director Brendan Baker. And he met his assistant director, Chloe Prasinos, back when they were both doing work for the podcast Love and Radio.
5: My background is uh, mostly just long-form documentary. So we
1: asked them, and not just because Brendan is an alumnus, to stop by Studio 360 to tell us about this new project, which is getting rave reviews from comic book nerds and audio nerds.
5: So Wolverine the Long Night focuses on two federal agents.
4: Agent Pierce and Agent Marshall, and they're special agents investigating a series of murders in this fictional town called Burns, Alaska.
5: And as they interview people and as they start to put the pieces together, this name Logan keeps coming up.
4: Who uh, you know, Marvel fans will know is Wolverine.
5: This man who's new to town.
4: He's been working on a fishing boat.
5: And who is seen to have done some strange things in the woods um, and who generally has an air of mystery about him.
4: He seems to be involved with some violent incidents and he quickly becomes one of the suspects in the story. And so they're trying to solve the murder and they learn more and more about this character, Logan. He's living alone in a cabin. He's run away from his previous life. Um, And so part of the mystery that we're unfolding is, you know, why is he there? What happened to him?
5: At the very top of the first episode, we hear a fisherman telling the listener about a grisly experience he just had.
2: Now, I'm running on no sleep. And I get to thinking maybe it's just my mind playing tricks on me, right? But I ease off the throttle and yell at Phil to work the fog lights. Now He's one of my duck hands. And sure enough, he finds it. The big black boat with red lettering on the side. Langrock Fishing Company. That's when I notice... The cabin light's on. But nobody's steering her. And it's drifting free. Rolling sideways, bobbing along the waves. And if we don't do something and do it fast, it's gonna crash into one of the five fingers. And the waves are rolling strong. So motoring up alongside her is dangerous. Now, Phil... Throws over the bumpers so we don't knock ourselves to pieces. And we tie one line and then another until we're locked together.
4: Well, credit from the music goes to Deru, this electronic musician who I really love, especially his approach to, like, layering textures. Um, and it works really well for the atmospheric approach that we were trying to achieve.
5: So often in his tracks, I'll listen and I'll be like, wait, is that, is that like wood creaking? Did I add that sound effect or is that in the music?
2: There's a nasty smell in there annoying ain 't fish
5: when Brendan and I were collaborating on how to employ music um, throughout this series, but especially in this clip, we thought about it as a way to focus the listener 's attention instead on like the skid of a boot on the slippery deck, or um, when the hold opens and and the fisherman sees these dead bodies, we want to pull the music back and bring in more. Basy tones so that we are focusing your attention on the dread the fisherman is experiencing seeing these peers of his stacked up and dead in the hold of the boat
2: yeah uh, phil can you uh you get me a flashlight the beam cuts through the shadows and there they are <sighs> the captain and this crew their bodies anyway
4: For the longest time, I've thought of sound design as a kind of attention design.
5: Yeah, it's like tuning your attention to the right feeling at the right moment. So say we're we're in a scene with um, the mother of one of the victims. That's a static room. You know, you have the sound of a clock ticking, maybe. You have the sound of a radiator. You have maybe, you know, the sound of the, the town outside, distant. Um, and we kind of wondered, okay, how do we want to use music in a moment like that where we're not going into a memory, so bringing music in we don't want that kind of, like, ethereal feel. And one of the things we found ourselves doing was um, turning to really low-pitched drones and kind of, like, the sound of, like, metal bending and pitching it way down and stretching it way out and just kind of bringing those sounds in this very lynchian way that kind of makes you feel tense, but you can't even quite tell why, to direct the listener's sense of compassion for for this woman and her pain.
1: Whatever is haunting us. You have to hunt it back. And if it's a bear, then you track it down. That's what I told the sheriff. I said, do something. You send every dog and every rifle out into those woods and you end it.
4: So the microphone that we use to record this project is called an ambisonic microphone, or it's sometimes called a sound field microphone. And it allows us to record... Spaces in three dimensions. So we can hear sounds above us, to the sides, below us. And it. when you put on headphones, you really feel like you're right there.
5: So we can really give a sense of a space as opposed to um, a single voice.
4: It's like watching a movie in IMAX 3D instead of watching it on a flat screen. Um, it's, it's a different type of experience.
5: Yeah, it's the same recording technique that's used for virtual reality.
4: Right. And so what we ultimately did was create these whole like virtual environments where you actually can hear people moving in the distance, you know, characters coming in from a door, and when they open the door, you know, you hear the sounds of the hallway outside.: Look, I care about this town. OK? I've lived here most of my life, and I want to keep it safe. Whoever did this to them, boys on that boat, let's get them. Most of the recordings are based off of this central surround microphone. So it was all about sort of how we frame the shot, how we block the actors around the shot. um, That allowed the actors to sort of stop thinking about, you know, whether they were on mic or off mic and more just got to inhabit their characters, you know, explore what the scene was telling them, explore what the characters were telling them and, and go deeper into the characters than I think they would have if they were just in front of a static mic having to, you know, read a script.
5: There definitely was like an onboarding process whenever an actor who hadn't worked with us yet would come to the studio. Brendan would explain the microphone, and uh, it was very fun to watch from a distance. then being like, "Oh wait, so I can I can move around? Oh, I can like
4: I can interrupt. This I can character. talk
5: to people. I can like, talk yeah, over step them. Step on each other. Yeah, that's yeah, fun. do it. What's that?
0: I knew this was gonna happen." Ever since I heard about those women getting killed, I just knew it was bad times ahead.
10: We didn't say anything oh, about the women. keep dying, mad. We're here about your crew.
5: But it was so fun to see them, you know, walk into this medium that many of them had never encountered before and, and realize that it was kind of more playful and expressive than they had expected.
10: Well, here it is. Front door is open. The suspect is not present.
4: Agent, here, sorry. How... How can you tell he's not here? It's like 40 yards away. Shouldn't we search the, we'll search search the cabin
10: place? when we finish the perimeter suite?
4: Got a bit of a trash
7: heap up here.
9: Anything noteworthy?
7: Uh, whiskey bottles. What looks like uh, empty bags of fertilizer.
9: Logan has no vehicle registered, but I'm noticing tracks motorcycle, dirt bike. Scan it.
2: Yep.
5: Because the series is set in rural Alaska, um, there's a fair amount of scenes that take place outside. So we went scouting around the area with our production manager, Emily Pontecorvo, and um, we went out to Staten Island, we went to Westchester, just trying to find a place that sounded like... The woods, and I can't tell you how difficult it is in this part of the country to find an area with no air traffic overhead. We found ourselves out being like, Oh my god, this is perfect. The crunch of the leaves, the tree, the sound in this valley is perfect. And then you'd hear a plane go overhead, and we're like, God, what are we gonna do? Like, that totally breaks the illusion.
4: One of the things that we learned the hard way is that air traffic patterns shift throughout the day.
5: Yeah, they sure do. So- <laughs>
4: What happened when we we recorded the first half of the day, everything was amazing. And then starting in about the afternoon, it just, the airplane started. It was
5: like rush hour in the sky.
4: So uh, from that point forward, we had to sort of capture these like small 20 second takes and edit them together. Like in, in all these moments where there was no air traffic
5: The Um, actors got pretty frustrated. It was a long day. There were also a fair amount of leaf blowers, which you can't predict.
4: It was fall. People were trying to clean up their yards, so you'd hear leaf blowers in the background, too. We had just no control over that.
5: Yeah, and when you're trying to make someone feel like they're in a canyon in Alaska, (laughs) there are no leaf blowers.
0: (laughs) The leaf blowers kind of ruined the image. Yeah. They're going to find me. Weapon X is going to find me. I said that from the beginning, right? I'm their property, I'm their investment. From the moment I escaped, they've been hunting for me. I guarantee it.
4: One of the real challenges with this kind of storytelling was how do we manage the past and the present? Like, we need someone to be describing what happened to them in the same way that, you know, you have someone telling their own story in a documentary. So being able to cut back and forth between the past and present was uh, an idea that we knew from day one that we wanted to have stylistically.
5: And by cut back and forth, you mean like hear hear the character telling their story to the agent and then to leave that space and go back into the memory?
4: Right. So... In the present tense, you'll hear sort of the sounds of the room. You'll hear, you know, the creaks of the floor, the radiator, the, you know, faucet tapping. And then as you go into someone's story, all those sounds start to fall away. And it's like you're only focusing on the person's voice. And then all of a sudden you hear their memory kind of blossoming out in front of you. And the ambient sounds from the present tense are now replaced by the sounds of their memory.
9: Where's the note you found in the book? It's
2: right here.
4: You can hear Agent Marshall starting to read the letter, and then as he's reading, you hear uh, Logan's voice quietly in the background. And as the music starts to ramp up and get louder, Logan's voice becomes louder. And we do this crossfade between Agent Marshall, who's reading the letter in the present, and Logan as if he were writing the letter, almost writing the letter out loud to Maureen in the past.
6: Uh, The handwriting took some effort to decipher, but
0: it reads as follows. Maureen. not much for writing letters I'm not much for writing letters I'm not much for saying sorry either but here I am I hated New Orleans because of all the bodies all the noise you know that but I also hated it because of all the cameras someone was always watching cameras on cell phones, cameras on traffic lights cameras in every store You'll hear in that clip the snicked sound,
4: which is something that we labored quite intensely over.
0: I should have told you I was leaving, but what happened happened fast. The shooter started working his way through the French Quarter, killing for the sake of killing. I I heard the gunshots from a bar. I should have walked away. People were screaming and running and trampling each other. I couldn't help myself. I took off his head.
4: In the Wolverine comics, every time his claws pop out you see this bubble that says SNIKT, S-N-I-K-T, exclamation point. Um, and so that was the sound that we were trying to recreate um, for our series, and it's a mixture of a bunch of different elements, including uh, sword sounds, knife sounds, some sharpening sounds, some sounds of gore, of the skin parting as his claws pop out, and a little bit of him just sort of inhaling as the claws actually extend.
5: Because every time Wolverine's claws come out, his skin actually breaks around his knuckles and the adamantium claws, you know, it hurts him.
4: When we, we were always wanting this to work for a general audience as well. And that's the challenge that we've been running into. Like, how do we portray this world in a way where it makes sense for a general audience and yet the Marvel fans don't feel like we're spoon feeding them?
5: I've been the person in the room the whole time that's like, wait, so he can heal? (laughs) Wolverine can heal himself?
4: He's got these claws too.
5: (laughs) Oh, right. Okay. (laughs) I think we also struggled with what, We wanted the aesthetic of the series to be because we both come from this world of you know documentary of realism, and here we were charged with bringing one of the most beloved comic book characters to life. And it was like, okay, well, are we going to do like boom, pow, crash, whack,
4: biff, pow, biff,
5: pow? (laughs) It's like I don't want to do that, but should we think about it? How are we going to invite the comic book genre to inform the way that the world that we're building sounds?
0: I knew Weapon X would hear about it because they hear about everything. I knew they'd be coming. I knew they would find me. And when they did, there'd be more killing. I got enough blood on my hands to fill a reservoir.
1: That story was produced by Zoe Saunders. Marvel's Wolverine, The Long Night is only available for now on Stitcher Premium. And that's it for this week's Studio 360. You can listen to previous episodes of this show, and be sure you never miss a new one by subscribing to Studio 360 on iTunes. And would it kill you to leave us a nice review there? Seriously, the feedback is useful, and it helps other people discover us. You can stay connected in the meantime with Studio 360 by following us on Facebook or on Twitter, where one of our favorite tweets this week came from listener Michael Beirut. Yes, That, Michael Beirut, the big-time graphic designer who designed, among other things, the Hillary Clinton logo for the last presidential campaign, and has been a guest on the show. He posted about our story concerning a certain old pizza advertising campaign. I had completely forgotten about the Noid until this oral history of how a quirky and awful, in my opinion, 80s ad campaign for Domino's Pizza descended into literal madness. Great reporting from Studio 360. Thank you, sir. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is...
5: Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our
1: senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by... Whitney Jones. Our producers are... Evan Chubb. Lauren Hanson. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Thank you very much for listening.
8: R.I. Public Radio International.
1: Next time on Studio 360.
3: Pregnancy is science fiction. (laughs) It's alive. It's the idea that you have your own body and all of a sudden you're sharing it with an alien.
1: How pregnancy and motherhood are suddenly big sci-fi themes. Next time on Studio 360.